right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats, and as you do, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and I promise I'm not texting, I'm just trying to make my phone not turn off so that I can watch the timer, because I'm pretty hyped, so if I don't do this, we'll be here till about 6 p.m., so I'm sure you want me to start this timer. Amen. Hasn't it been a good morning, church? Yes. Celebrating what God has done. Uh, it, it's, it is a good Sunday. Again, if you're visiting, I'm glad you're here. Again, I'm Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at New Breed. We're so thankful that you're visiting. What, what I'm imagining, many of you are celebrating what God has done in the life of the individuals that you know, uh, that you, you got to witness their baptism. And so we at New Breed Church right now, we like to preach through books of the Bible. And we've been preaching through the book of, of Galatians. It's a series that's been entitled Getting Back to Grace. And what we're going to do this Sunday is we're going to take a break from that, as you've probably figured out since I had you open your Bibles to Romans. Uh, we're going to kind of step out of that series for a little bit, but we'd encourage you to come back in the weeks to come as we continue to dive in to the book of Galatians. And the title of this morning's sermon is Living in Light of Baptism. Living in light of baptism. And we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And if you've arrived there, if you've got that open, will you stand as, out of reverence for God's word as we read it together? Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Hear what Paul writes. He said, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Praise God. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, as we look at Romans chapter 6, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, as we think through this idea of how do we live in light of baptism. For your praise and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So again, this morning, we, we had the privilege of celebrating as five individuals were baptized about it. And I, I can feel your spirit, so make no mistake about it. This is something that we should celebrate. We celebrate new life, pictured, symbolized in baptism. But we celebrate it because of how significant baptism is. You know, during the baptism class, so we had a class for those who, who wanted to be baptized, and during the class, we talked a little bit about what baptism is 
and why it is so significant. And I want to share with you here in the introduction just briefly a little of what we talked about, about what baptism is and why it is significant. One of the reasons that baptism is so significant is because of what it symbolizes. It is a picture of some very significant realities. Here are a few of them. First, it signifies, baptism signifies, it symbolizes Christ's death and resurrection. We saw that in the text we just read in Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So it symbolizes Christ's death and resurrection. But baptism also symbolizes a disciple's union with Christ in his burial and resurrection. Colossians 2, 12 through 13 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith by the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Not only that, baptism symbolizes the new life in which a disciple now walks. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. But baptism also symbolizes the cleansing and washing away of sin. It's a symbol of, of the washing away of sin. In Acts 22.16, Ananias says to Paul, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. But here's the incredible thing about baptism. While baptism is a symbol, and we often forget about this, baptism is actually more than a symbol. So baptism is considered a means of grace. Now, now bear with me on this, because this is incredible. We don't fully understand how that plays itself out and what that means. Because what, what a means of grace, baptism is a means of grace, it is through which when, where God supernaturally encourages and sanctifies a believer. For the five of you who were just baptized, you know that at that moment, God began to supernaturally sanctify you. And it's something that only God can do. And we don't have a full concept of how that works. And that's all right, because the mysteriousness of God makes him all the more worthy of our worship. Amen. If, all we, if we could figure out everything about our God, that'd be a pretty puny God and we would have no reason to worship. We're okay with the mystery, but baptism is a means of grace. But baptism is also a command. It's not an optional aspect of the Christian walk, but it is meant to be the first step in Christian obedience. And with that, we believe that baptism, as I mentioned earlier, is entrance into the covenantal family of God. That's why at Newbury Church, we believe that baptism should always be done in the local church. Always. Shouldn't be done at youth camp. Shouldn't be done through parachurch ministries. Shouldn't be done in your bathtub, at your house with your friends gathered around. It should be done in the context of a local church because these members, now members who, who were baptized this morning, when they came up out of that water, they were not only signifying their burial and their resurrection, but they became the moment we as a church baptized them, covenantal members of New Breed Church where we will walk alongside them and hold them accountable, encourage them, push them, fight for their sanctification. We will discipline them if necessary because the Christian life is meant to be lived in community. But let me tell you two things that baptism does not do and it is not. Baptism does not save you. 
I'm going to say that one more time. Baptism does not save you. Though grace is mysteriously mediated through this ordinance, it is not saving grace, but rather sanctifying grace. We are more conformed to the image of Jesus as we obey him in this call to be baptized, but there is nothing special about that water. I got it out of our dingy mop closet through a hose and filled it up and then used a little strainer that my wife's going to have to sanitize because we use it for cooking to kind of like, you know, skim out some of the dust and the dirt and the hair that was left from last time. I told you that after the fact. Some people want to get baptized again right now. It's not the water that saves. It's not the act that saves. It is by the blood of Jesus alone. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and nothing else. So this water does not save. Rather, it is a picture of what has already taken place in the life of a believer. And I want to say this as well, that baptism is not necessary for salvation. Now, I don't want to undercut the significance of baptism, but you have to understand that baptism isn't necessary for salvation. Again, without in any way diminishing the duty and delight of baptism for a believer, we must also warn against thinking which suggests that salvation is dependent upon baptism. Again, the gospel is one of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So what just took place is amazing. Baptism is amazing. We might have been thinking through the symbol, but it's just incredible to think that as we sat in this room, as these individuals were baptized, God was supernaturally sanctifying in a way that only he can do. Our God is awesome. So with that in mind, and in light of the fact that we have just baptized individuals, and if you are a member here at Newbreed Church, it means that you have been baptized. I want to speak for just a little while, not really anymore about what baptism is, but I want to speak about the idea of how do we live in light of baptism. You see, we can't forget that baptism is not the end of our faith experience. It isn't like, all right, I've trusted in Jesus, placed my faith in him, I got dunked in the water. I'm good. I have done everything that I need to do. I have punched my ticket. I don't get hell. Now I get heaven. Some people act like it's the end of the journey. Where baptism is the foundation of the journey. It is the starting point of this walk of faith. What we will see in our passage this morning is that One of the moments in the Christian life that Paul looks back on to help push these believers to walk in holiness, a foundational moment in their pursuit of holiness is their baptism. He pushes them to their baptism. So let's get into our text this morning. At the end of, let me give you some context. So at the end of Romans 5, Paul has just finished speaking about how death entered the world through one man. Who was it? Adam, that's right. And he talks about life has entered the world through another man. Who is it? Jesus. Amen. The second Adam. And so then, beginning in verse 20, Paul says this, The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more so, that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he has just made this statement. Track with me here that the more sin increased, 
the more sin multiplied, the more grace increased, and the more grace multiplied. But at the beginning of chapter 6, he's going to address an issue that he foresees coming, right? Because let's call a spade a spade here. Sinful people like their sin, amen? And so Paul knows that twisted people are going to say, well, if that's the case, and the more I sin, the more grace I get, then I'm just going to pursue more sin so I can get more grace, right? I'm going to enjoy this world. And God will just keep multiplying grace. And Paul is going to do away with that. And in verses 1 and 2 of our text this morning, he, he poses a question and then answers it. He says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? And here he answers it. He said, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, here in chapter 6, Paul begins discussing the fact that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, hear me, it is an obligation because of our union with Christ to fight to live holy lives. It is our obligation in light of what Christ has done to daily fight sin. But his answer to the question he posed is so interesting because he says, we have died to sin. And with this statement, Paul is highlighting what Christ has done through the cross and resurrection and how that applies to us who have placed our faith in Christ. Through the cross and resurrection, for those who have trusted in Jesus, Jesus has destroyed the old man. This man that was defined by a sinful nature and he has created in its place a new man defined by holiness. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a moment, but I'm going to give you kind of a a foretaste of what's to come. Think about the implications of that believer. That means that sin no longer rules you. Sin no longer rules you. We are not marked by sin, and in the eyes of a holy God, praise God, we are no longer seen by our sin. And in light of this truth, Paul is calling us to live as if we have indeed died to sin. Live your life in the pursuit of Jesus, in the pursuit of holiness. And as he calls believers to be holy, he ties that explicitly to their baptism. So this morning, I want to offer you three truths. And we're going to move through this fairly quickly. Three truths that will help us live in light of baptism. Here's the first truth. Our pursuit of holiness... So when we say pursuing holiness, we're talking about looking more like Jesus. Our pursuit of holiness is rooted in our baptism. Our pursuit of holiness is rooted in our baptism. Look again at verses 3 through 5. He says, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So note this, right? As Paul begins to point these believers to living a holy life, he takes them all the way back to their baptism. Remember how I said that baptism isn't the end? You don't just get to forget about it. Paul brings them all the way back. He says, remember when you were baptized. And he grounds their pursuit of holiness in that event that took place in their life. Now, here's the question. It's a very important question. Why? Why does Paul take them back to their baptism? Why is it that he grounds their pursuit of holiness in baptism? 
Well, here's the answer. Paul knows that baptism is a tangible picture, declaration, and reminder of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Baptism is a tangible, you can feel it, you can see it, you can experience it. It is a tangible picture, declaration, and reminder of what Christ has done for us on the cross. So he goes on to explain, you see, baptism reminds us that we have died to sin. Verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. Church, when Christ died, he took all the sin that defined us and all the shame that we carried and all the condemnation we bore and all the guilt we accrued and all the punishment that was due us and he buried it in a grave. Yeah, yeah, you missed your amen on that one. He took all of it, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sin, all of the filth that defined us and he buried it in a tomb. And for those of us in Christ, we died to those things that day because they were put to death. They weren't wounded. They weren't weakened. They were killed. But we have to understand what we have to understand is that for those for those of us, for all of us, those were the things that defined us. So in Christ, as he buried them, the old man, the old woman that once was, is now dead as well. But here's the beautiful thing. Paul goes on and says in verse 4, and he says, In order that, as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You see, Paul also understands that not only does baptism remind us that the sin has been killed, the old man has been killed, but baptism reminds us that in Christ we have new life. This is not an addition to once was. This is not making what was already there a little better. This is new life. Where there was once sin, there is now righteousness. Where there was once death, there is now life. It is not an improved man. It is not a better man in Christ. It is a new man. It is a new man. What is even more amazing is that this new man is now united with Christ, united in Christ. You see, Paul also understands that baptism reminds us that we are united in Christ. In verse 5, Paul says, For if you have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul says this in Galatians 3, chapter 27. So stay tuned, church. We're coming to that real soon. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed in Christ. That's incredible. For those of you who are baptized into Christ, you have been clothed with Christ. You are united to Christ. He is in you and you are in him. I I don't think we think enough about our union with Christ. We are in him and he is in us. And if we are united with him in his death, then we are united with him in his resurrection. All the joy, all the hope, all the power of Christ's resurrection is ours when we are united with him. The great preacher, theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones reflected, tried to reflect on just how amazing this union with Christ is when he wrote this. He says, we can therefore claim that what has happened to Christ has happened to us. He is the marvel and mystery of our salvation. It is the most glorious thing that we could ever contemplate. The Son of God, the second person in the eternal Godhead, came down from heaven to earth. He took on to him human nature. He joined human nature unto himself. He shared human nature. And as the result of his work, we human beings share his life and are in him. 
and are participators in the benefits, all of them, that come from him. He says, now I remind you, and I must repeat it, that and nothing less is all of Christianity. The foundation of your faith is that you are united with Christ. He is in you and you are in him. The theologian Sinclair Ferguson, after expounding scripture and trying to give practical examples and experiences and trying to help us understand the union with Christ, he sums it all up and says all that he has left. But all of these expressions are simply extensions of this one fundamental idea. If I am united to Christ, all that is his is mine. The power of the resurrection is mine. The new life is mine. Being pleasing to the Father is mine. The joys and benefits of eternity are mine because of Christ. And baptism reminds us of all of this. So when Paul calls believers to die to sin and live for Christ, he roots it in baptism. Again, a tangible picture, declaration, and reminder of what Christ has done for us on the cross, which should motivate us to fight for holiness. Here's the second truth. The second point this morning, when we consider living in light of our baptism, I love this one. Baptism reminds us that sin no longer rules over us. Oh, that's good news, church. Baptism reminds us that sin no longer rules over us. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, listen, we got to take a moment and just consider the majesty of verse six. Our old self is crucified. It was put to death. It was done away with. And on top of that, God has rendered sin powerless in our life. Some of y'all might be thinking, well, I still feel like sin has a lot of power in my life. Well, we're going to get to that. But what the Bible tells us is that sin is powerless in your life if you are in Christ. Because sin lived in the sinful nature, and Jesus killed that in the tomb. It's dead. It holds no power over you. So what does that mean practically? Paul tells us, he says, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Can we just talk for a minute about how in Christ we are no longer slaves and we are free? Right? I, I quoted in my prayer early Ephesians 2, which begins and says, For you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of, uh, of the air, the, or the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Let me translate that for you. You are a slave to sin apart from Christ. You can do nothing but sin apart from Christ. And the scary thing is, apart from Christ, you don't even know you have chains on you. That's the scariest part. You might think, man, I'm living a good life. Like, I'm, I have fun. Every once in a while, something bad goes wrong. But, like, I, I'm okay right now. I'm okay. And, and you're settling for the valley, and you're missing the mountaintop. Yeah. Because you are a slave 
to sin, but baptism reminds us that sin no longer has a hold on us. And listen to me, somebody needs to hear this. We who are Christians have to hold sin in its proper place, but we have to hold the cross and the empty tomb in its proper place as well. Too many of us are running around like the cross is doing its best job to try to overcome the overwhelming power of sin, but we have to flip that on its head and remember that sin is trying desperately to overthrow the insurmountable hill called Calvary. We believe that sin is stronger than the cross and we live like it is and it's a dangerous thing. And some of us has to believe that, no, 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 we're not playing defense. We're playing offense because the cross has already won. Satan is trying with all his power to overthrow what God has done. God is not trying to overthrow what Satan has done. He already did it on the cross. And in Christ, sin has no hold on you. Somebody in this room has to believe that the sin that you are struggling with, God will really give you deliverance over that he will really give you victory. We run around like God might do it. He could do it. We have to believe that God will do it because he told us sin is powerless over you. I have freed you from the curse of the law. And now in Christ, we are free to live righteous lives. Some of you sitting in this room right now are wondering when this fight with pornography will stop. And you're trying to manage. That's all you're trying. You're trying to manage. I'm trying to not do it as much. I'm trying to manage. And what we believe is that in Christ, there is real victory over that. So if you come to me and ask for my help and my counseling, I will love you and I will counsel you. But I will tell you on the front and I am believing that God will allow you to conquer this. Not just make it less. Some of you right now in this room are struggling to love your spouse. And you have to believe that God can give you real victory over that sin. Because I'll just tell it to you, failure to love and to honor the covenant of marriage that you have made is sin. And some of us are just wanting God to just make it manageable. If we could just live in the same house and not throw a pot at each other. Man, but we have to believe that God can give real victory and the gospel can shine in our marriages. Some of you right now are battling the sin of fear. You are scared to death to let the world know that you love Jesus. You are scared to death to share your faith, and it is sin. Some of us are like, well, God, if you could just allow me to share my faith once. Man, we got to believe that God will give us the acts for boldness where the house shakes. Listen to me. You have got to believe that sin is trying to overcome the cross. The cross is not trying to overcome sin because when Jesus said it is finished to tell us die in the Greek, it is done. He said it is paid in full. You know what the craziest thing about that word to tell us die is? Why I love it so much. Why I have it tattooed on my upper arm. Yes, a pastor has tattoos. We talk about that next week. It's because they found in ancient times when G- Jesus would have lived that word stamped on old tax records, to telestai, boom. Not only does that mean it is finished, but that means in the economic world, that term means paid in full. Paid in full. And so when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he paid it in full. He took your sin and he buried it in a tomb and he said, you have real victory. Believe it. Now here's the question. I'm not saying, this isn't the question. I'm not saying that you will not struggle with sin. You absolutely will. Hear me. I am not saying that you will come to a point in this life when you will completely stop sinning. That's why I'm not Methodist. Sorry if you're Methodist. I love my Methodist brothers and sisters. 
They believe that you can come to a place of perfection in this life. We don't believe that. I will be perfect when I am dead and alive in glory. I am not saying that you will not struggle with sin, because some of you are sitting here thinking like, man, I must have got this wrong, because I'm really battling sin right now. He's talking to me. I'm battling this struggle of pornography. I'm battling trying to love my wife. I'm, I'm battling fear, and I'm not winning. I'm not saying we won't struggle with sin. But what I am saying is that Christ has told you there's real victory. I love how John Piper explains it when he says that what the new birth, this new creation brings into being, listen to this, is an embattled, not yet perfect, spirit-empowered, persevering, Christ-treasuring, sin-hating, new being in Christ. The outcome is guaranteed, but the battle is real. We know that in the grand scheme of eternity, sin has lost. The war is over. But there are still all these silly little side battles that we have to fight. And so we fight them. We fight for holiness. We pursue holiness, remembering what we declared and we believed when we were baptized. That the old man was buried. He's dead. And Christ has raised a new man, one who can now walk in newness of life. And this leads us to our third and final truth of what it, that will help us live in light of baptism. Here it is. Not only has sin been overcome, but we are free to live for Christ. We are free to live for Christ. Once again, baptism reminds us of this, that we are free to live for Christ. See, it's not just that sin has been overcome. We are also now free to live for Christ. It's the other side of the same coin. Look at what he says in verses 8, and 8 through 11. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know, we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Praise God. Death no longer rules over him. Now, I want you to pay close attention to these last two verses. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, it's not enough to just believe that we have died to sin. We have to live for something. And what the gospel has freed us to do, what Jesus Christ through the power of his death and resurrection has done, is he has freed us to live for him. See, in other words, not only does baptism remind us of the death we died, but it reminds us of the life we live. As Jesus rose from the dead with new life, Romans 6.10 tells us that the life Christ lived, he lives for God. And so then in verse 11, we are called to live the same way. And we have to understand, this is important, church, don't miss this. A lot of Christians have botched it here. We have to understand that being set free from sin is not a freedom to do whatever you want. See, that's not biblical freedom. That's American freedom. I'm free. I can do what I want. I'm free. I can say what I want. I'm free. I can own what I want. Ain't that stupid? <laughs> Sorry. But the Bible understands freedom a little differently. Freedom is not the absence of choice. Freedom is now having the possibility to follow the only true choice. 
Paul says it like this in Galatians 5, 1, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Some of us in this room have tasted the freedom of Jesus and then we've run back to our sin and put the chains right back on ourselves. But the beautiful thing about those who are in Christ Jesus is they can't be locked again. God says, take them off and come back. Live for me. We can now, in Christ, live lives that are pleasing to the Father, and this is called worship. In light of what God has done for us, it is our privilege to walk in the freedom that Christ has given us. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Walk in freedom. You do realize that prior to trusting in Christ, there is nothing that you could do to please God. Nothing. So far, it goes so far that at the end of Romans, Paul looks at the church in Rome. He says that anything done outside of faith is sin. I've talked about this before. That's a mind-boggling thing. That means a believer can care for the poor with a heart that's fixed on Jesus and it's seen as righteous. A lost person can care for the poor and God sees it as sin. Because anything done outside of faith is sin. That really stands in the notion that you can make yourself look good before God, right? That's what some of us do. We say, well, I'm just going to get my life together. I'm going to try to fix some of these problems. I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to do enough good to outweigh the bad, and then God will be pleased with me. But if you are not in Christ, everything you do is seen as bad. The, the scales are tipped against you, and rightly so. But that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. The stone that rolled away is real heavy, and it tips the scales to, in another direction. We are now free in Christ Jesus to live for him. So what am I saying really practically, really plainly? You can walk in holiness. You can kill sin. You can honor Jesus in how you live. You can live in a way that seeks to make much of him. Scripture says, whether at home or away, it is our aim to please him. In Christ Jesus, we are pleasing to the Father. So how do we live in light of baptism? We ground ourselves in our baptisms. We fight to kill sin that is present in our lives. We fight to walk in the freedom that has been given to us. In, in other words, we fight for holiness. Though the old man is dead, traces of him still linger. Though the old woman is dead, traces of her still linger. And so we fight day in and day out to get rid of it. And we fight hard because he fought for us. Paul ends in verse 11 and says, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this beautiful ordinance of baptism that we observed and celebrated reminds us that this is true for us who are in Christ Jesus. But before we close, I would be remiss if I didn't say this. If you are here and you have not placed your faith in Christ Jesus and you have not trusted in what he has done for you on the cross, please hear me when I say this. Your sin separates you from God. You're not hurting. You're not in a bad way. You're not struggling. Apart from Christ, you are dead in your sins. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, meaning that what we deserve because of our sin is death. God should rightly punish us. See, what you have to understand what sin is. Sin is rebelling against, against God's authority over us. It's saying, God, we don't need you. We don't care about you. In essence, every time we sin, it's us giving God the finger with our actions. 
And that deserves the anger of a king. And God is right to destroy us. Too many people running around with this false view of God like he's a giant teddy bear in the sky that you can live however you want in this life. And when you see him, he's going to say, it's all right, come on in. He doesn't work that way because God's holiness demands perfection. And one sin was enough to condemn us for all of eternity. But praise God, he loves us. And scripture says he sent his son Jesus to come and live in this world. Jesus walked this earth. And he lived this life perfectly in every area that we have failed. And so what does that mean of Jesus? He didn't deserve what? Death. And yet, it pleased the Father to kill him. And God the Father allowed Jesus to go to the cross, and Jesus went to the cross, and he died in our place. And scripture tells us that God poured out all of his hatred. Think about that. We don't think of God as hating. God hates sin. God poured out all of his hatred, all of his anger, all of his wrath on his son. And he died on that cross. They put him in a grave and they thought it was over. And we believe three days later, Jesus raised from the dead. That's not a sentiment to us. It's not a story. And when he walked out of that tomb, it was the declaration that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. That he had paid the penalty for our sin, that he had killed death. And God invites us to come and to find life in Jesus. And the Bible doesn't give us a bunch of hoops to jump through. It doesn't say you got to do this, this, and this. You got to clean your life up first. You got to make sure you're living right. The Bible doesn't say any of that. The Bible says, listen, if you will have faith, if you will bank all that you have on Jesus, believe that he is the only way you can be made right with God, that without him, you stand and you have to face the punishment of God on your own. I don't want that. But we believe that Jesus has paid for it, that the tomb is empty. And then the Bible says, if you just have faith in that and if you repent, what repent means is turn from your sins. Doesn't mean you stop sinning because none of us can do that. But it says that we will. It's like that question that we ask them, the, the people getting baptized. Do you long to live lives marked by repentance, meaning that you are daily going to fight to, to, to run after God and turn away from the sinful things of this world? And we will falter and we will fail. Some of us won't make it out of this building before we sin again. But there's grace for that. But if we have faith and repent, the Bible says that we can be saved. And we, in Christ, we can feel the powerlessness of sin and the freedom to walk in Jesus. And so my invitation to you, if you are here today and you have not trusted in Jesus, is do that. Trust in him. I'll be at the back here in just a moment. We're going to do something called communion, and I'll be standing back there. And if you want to ask me more questions about that, you want to talk about that, please come and talk to me. But we do believe that the blood of Jesus still saves. We believe it. We saw it. And we celebrate. There is newness of life offered for you here today. But for you who are in Christ, fight for holiness. Worship the Lord for all that he has done for you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we just rejoice at who you are. We rejoice at the fact that you would love us and we are unlovable. We rejoice in the fact that though there was sin, you offer freedom. Though there was death, you offer life. And it comes at a high price. It cost your son his life. But God, you raised him from the dead and he is no longer dead. 
He is alive and seated at your right hand, and he reigns and he rules and he mediates for us. And so we give you all the praise and all the glory. God, I pray that if there is someone here who does not know you, that they would want to know you, that you would give eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray for New Breed Church that these baptism waters wouldn't turn once a year. But that we would be doing baptisms every week as we watch the gospel go forth and save and give life and freedom and hope and joy in the midst of a world that is so broken. We praise you for who you are. God, even if you wouldn't have saved us, you are still God and you are still good. But we have all the more reason to praise those of us who are in Christ because we have been redeemed and for freedom you have set us free. God, stop us from running back to the yoke of slavery. Help us to live in light of baptism. In Jesus' name.